We might just get started. There's people coming up coming. So um, this could mean that as a workshop, but they had this birds of a feather thing, and thrown it in as birds of a feather. This audio is being recorded, by the way, so I may I may use it um, for a bio recording or what have you. So um, please be aware of that fact and talk accordingly. You will, of course, be censored, and unless you state your name, no one will ever know who you are. So good way of starting. Um, do any of you have a definition for what an artificial life hobby is? So, um, I've done a bit of research on the term uh, because I was part of the initial planning. I'm Tom Barbalay, by the way. Um, Mobile Ape is my artificial life hobbyist simulation I've been developing it for more than 16 years now. It's been used by uh, Apple and Intel and hopefully Netflix, who's my current employer. Um, and it simulates the, the red dots are uh, ape, ape like creatures wandering over an environment. As you can see, there's tides, uh, there's a weather simulation uh, behind it. This is all fractal as well, so I'm just going to throw things in disorder and uh, create a new environment. Uh, so, a wide variety of components to Noble Um I've published on it academically, which is part of the obvious definition as well, but historically, um, there was no meaningful definition for what I did. Um, in 2005, I picked up the Biota.org site. Um, are we familiar with Biota? It was a Biota conference series. Um, Dawkins, Douglas Adams, a wide variety of people attended in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and then basically the site went dead. And about 2005, Bruce Damer, who ran the site, um, contacted me because I've been periodically pinging him saying, could you update the site, could you update the site? Finally, he had a project uh, that had taken enough of his time that he passed the site on to me. I started doing text interviews initially, and then I did a series of audio interviews. Uh, I might have the site as well. So I've released it as an internet radio show or podcast. Fresh Sim is a group that came out of Biota, it's an artificial life forum. But what you have on here is a series of interviews with um, luminaries and other folk. Uh, this is the Biota Live, which was the internet radio show. Uh, Jeff Clune, who talked about uh, a wide variety of folk and ideas uh, taken in an internet radio recorded format. Um, so biota.org, uh, in this case, slash podcast. And through this definition, there were a group of people who had previously been academics and now were no longer academics but were maintaining their artificial life simulation. People like, well, Larry Yeager is an interesting example, but he's kind of moved from industry back to academia, but there was a period of time where he was in industry. Uh, and a number of us didn't fit the standard profile associated with artificial life academic, um, so there was a need for another term. And slightly tongue-in-cheek, a couple of us coined the term hobbyist, to describe these folks that had long-term artificial life simulations. I worked on Noblelight probably between 6 to 12 hours a week uh, in terms of the underlying simulation elements. I have a full-time developer who's a roboticist in the UK called Bob Lottram, uh, who's added a lot of the um, kind of social robotics elements to Noblelight. So um, the social graph elements that you see here, the Honor, for example, the Drives, which is simply Brazil at MIT, uh, are all elements that come from Bob Mottram. Wide variety of components to Noble 8. There's an internal simulation that covers heart rate breathing, um, 
Yeah, I, I use the metaphor associated with kind of model rail enthusiasts, but what you do is you take a biological environment, you zoom in on a certain area, you write a simulation associated, you take it finally, you write a simulation, you step up. So in Noble Ape, in terms of the simulations, you have the landscape simulation, the weather simulation, uh, you have a cognitive simulation, which you can see uh, here, representing the ape's cognitive processes. It's a fast reactive simulation, so it's the fear and desire elements that the apes have. In addition, there's the social simulation, which I mentioned, which is the Cynthia Brazil, uh, stuff with the honor and the uh, hunger and fatigue and social sex drives. And then in addition, there, um, the apes have episodic memory. So what you see here is the apes experience this particular ape. They have human double barrel names in Snowball Ape. Um, so you can get a list of, uh, of all the noble apes that are in the simulation environment currently and focus on a particular one. Uh, see the various things that are going on uh, in uh, this particular ape's existence in a particular time. So the term hobbyist has like I said, first coined in roughly 2005, a uh, fellow in the UK and I uh, came up with the term. But since then, in large part through biota, uh, it's a term that a number of people have kind of picked up on uh, and run with, because either they've not been in academia, they've not been in industry, or they've had a long-term simulation that they've just maintained. There are central elements like open source, so the reason Apple first picked up Noble 8 uh, was because it was an open source uh, simulation, that they could just get the source code, drop it into their compilers and it worked. Uh, Apple used it because there's a real-time graphics component and a tight mathematical core, various optimizations for their specific processor architecture and how you actually interact with the environment. Um, when Apple lost that part, when they moved to the Intel processor, that technology and the Noble 8 part of that went to Intel, and Intel has maintained it from about 2005 through to, well, pretty well the present day. Um, there's a team at Intel that's used Noble Ape extensively and a number of smaller teams uh, that have come up from it. Um, so that's the definition of hobbyist. That's my project specifically. My hope is that there will be others here today that have similar projects or similar interests. I know you came to the first session and you... Would you consider yourself a hobbyist? Would you like to talk a little bit more about... Well, I mean, one of the goals I've had for about 15 years is developing something very simple to motion have here. Just unfortunately, real life takes precedence of artificial life. So, Certainly. Uh, so it's only just been little bits here and there that I, I intend to piece together and I don't really get to, and then I write another piece, and then I piece that in. So I got my little bits of bottles. So that was my legacy prior to actually starting my life. Was, as you say, I had all these little bits and pieces. I had a, a rich uh, petri dish simulation, which went into the cognitive simulation. I had a landscape visualization engine, which, you know, previous iterations went into that. The collecting of those things together actually produces it's the idea of the gestalt, that all the pieces are more when they are all together. Uh, I can't really give you any meaningful motivation to do that, other than it will be you know, better than the pieces are individually. Um, in terms of the legacy of the hobbyists, there have been a number of people that have certainly impacted on me, but in terms of your interests, where did this come from? Uh, it's been going for a while, and I sort of had kind of a embryonic kind of 
and just someone handed me Ingrid's uh, Creatures, mm-hmm. and I just I was like, someone's done it. And I was like, well, why not just make something like this too? I didn't look at So in terms of Steve Brand, absolutely fascinating fellow. I mean, you, you've probably had exposure to my conversations with him, or recorded conversations yeah. at least. So the thing with Steve Brand is he really... He would be a hobbyist if he released his stuff open source. I was able to get one of his games. So, do people know who Steve Brand is? I know we're talking about the old game called Creatures, Creatures 2 Yeah. So, aside from that, from that, Steve Brand got heavily involved in robotics, um, and he's been periodically funded by various groups in the UK uh, to do research, but he's now based here. He um, ran a, um, what's it called, Kickstarter's project. Here you mean uh, in the US? No, in the US, sorry. The US. sorry. He's, in, he's in Arizona, I think, currently. Um, but not academically affiliated there. Um, he has a kind of hermit, well, a hermit lifestyle, but he has people that come through and visit him, basically. Um, I'm already, I mean, I don't necessarily know how I editorialize his current life, but. Um, he got funding through Kickstarters recently to create a game. Um, and he's been living off the proceeds from that um, pretty well for the past, I guess, year and a half. Do you know any more about the... Um, I'm, I did the Kickstarter thing for it, which got me access into his... Basically, here's what's happening every day. So I don't know, keep up he's, he's working hard. He's, he's just doing it piece at a time. He's like, I'm doing the chemistry today. Yeah. I'm doing the so, his game prior, maybe two games prior to what he's doing for the Kickstarters, I was able to get him to release open source. So, Synergy on SourceForge is that project. So, that is a fully functional game that he developed. Uh, in large part, because he wasn't going to continue to develop it, he didn't want to develop it anymore, but he thought it would be inspirational to others to be able to pick up the source code. And since then, um, most recently through FreshSim, which is the, the forum site that I, I run, um, a fellow, I think, will pick it up and, and run with it accordingly and actually produce something from it. He has a very simple existing artificial life simulation that uses the XNA element in it, so it would be relatively straightforward for him to pick up Synergy and adopt all of those components. And interestingly enough, Synergy comes from his robotics, from um, Steve Brand's uh, a robotics project earlier as well. So the linking factors that you see in Steve Brand's work is uh, analog electronics, a uh, relatively simple chemistry model, uh, and a specially designed neural network. I think that's pretty well signature in all the things that he has done. Um, and the stuff that he contributed into Symmetry contained robotic elements as well in terms of actual connected parts. So Symmetry is a game uh, where basically you form, you form living entities that have locomotion, uh, consume energy, but they are, um, they are from atomic components that are built together and there are various reproductive rules and various inheritance rules. I don't, I think there might be, I'm not sure if there's a, a kind of backling winning over component. I thought there may have been an element in that where if you killed another creature or what have you, you could then disassemble it and pick out bits as well. I think there might be, there's a kind of familiar theme in that element too. Um, but yeah, Steve Brand is an interesting character, and certainly, aside from, well, he now has an open source project thanks to my efforts with Symmetry, uh, but aside from that, he still maintains a very tightly closed source model, 
I would consider him a hobbyist. I mean, but he's a actually not true. Now I've said it out loud. He is a professional, but basically he is very inspirational in the hobbyist community. I think the notion of inspiration versus creating something is the thing that interests me. Um, and he has a he has a very substantial. His ability to generate money through Kickstarters relatively rapidly was phenomenal. He generated. I'm going to get the number wrong, but he generated a quite sizable amount of money very, very rapidly. But he did that because he had a following, he had books, and he also had a good success with a commercial game. In fact, a couple of commercial games, but one that he had the most influence in. Um, other examples of hobbyists? Well, I think Jeffrey Ventrella is another good example. Are we familiar with Jeffrey Ventrella's work? Okay, Jeffrey Ventrella um, has attended a few artificial life conferences. He is Work relates to walkers, avatar uh, elements, and uh, swim bots. Um, if you've seen um, evolving swimmers in a variety of um, uh, Darwin Pond and Gene Pool, are the two games that have come through that, uh, and basically just um, the evolution of swimming, but also really interesting underlying elements. He has an element of racism, for example. So you can get mating selection based on similarity versus difference and these kind of things. So you can see what happens if um, it's just a, it's a binary switch. You can see what happens if the swimmers uh, have a particular disposition specifically to their own or to diversity and what happens through those environments. So relatively simple. He did that as well as, as we described with Steve Grant as part of a, a commercial game project. I've also worked with him to move some of his work over the source again I moved a, a, a project he developed called Melody Ball, which is, uh, it doesn't have an underlying genetic component, but it could have an underlying genetic component. It's a notion of kind of spatial music. So you have a series of um, uh, points in space that have angle components, um, and there's really no underlying artificial life componentry to it, but it just relates to a ball that drops and hits them and plays melody, basically, as the ball moves around. Previously, and I think um, I don't want to concatenate his work here with Jonathan Klein's work, um, but he also has an evolving music uh, component, um, which is a movement from uh, Dawkins, the Dawkins and the um, Blind Watchmaker. Anyway, the artificial life simulation Dawkins talks about the Blind Watchmaker, but with regards to music, so you can select spatially. Um, a series of songs and basically it'll play it for you. It, it, the, it has a graphical component to it as well where you see the instruments and uh, you end up with these kind of hybridized instruments with the sound literally flowing through them spherically. So Ventrell's work is amazing in terms of the kind of graphical characterization of it. He has a very keen, he was at MIT Media Lab, he has a very keen visual sense and he's taken that on to his projects following. Other people in the hobbyist community, uh, uh, Dave Kerr is another example, complete hobbyist, no connection with academia, no connection with industry. He developed a project called AI Planet through the 90s, where you could program your own creatures into the environment. But these were creatures that were that had visual representation, so you could create um, um, uh, what they call rubber ducks, for example, or tigers, or uh, walking palm trees, 
And it was completely open source. It was a platform, unfortunately, it ran on uh, Delphi, which was the only downside. But people had contributions uh, to it, and the planet grew progressively as the contributions were added. And all these components interacted. Uh, the person who, who introduced the tiger basically killed off a whole series of other things, and then they had to create separate planets. There was a political kind of forum aspect to it as well, associated with how you would actually introduce, you know, um, swans versus, you know, fire-breathing ants and all these kind of things. But it, um, it was picked up by the alternative dance music rave scene at the time, and it became, people would make t-shirts with AI Planet, and it became kind of an external thing that brought people back into it as well. is an interesting example because he has always wanted to integrate with the academic community. In the previous, um, I've been giving workshops all day, in the previous workshop we were talking specifically about what biologists need to do in order to embrace these kind of hobbyist projects because they're fundamentally non-academic. They're to scratch an itch, they're, um, although a number of people, Jeffrey Mitchell and myself, um, and Steve Graham publish academically, they're not your traditional, uh, here's a biological system, here's a simulation representation, you know, let's change the simulation representation to try and map it onto a dumb biological system. It's not that kind of thing. You're actually scratching different itches, basically. Um, but what comes through that is something that biologists could equally study and learn something that they could then map back to some other system. The problem with the biological simulations that was described in the last session um, by the fellow who attended was that um, biologists don't currently do this. They don't see these artificial life systems almost like biological systems. And the underlying studying element associated with that, there needs to be some kind of descriptive change. Um, that's really why I kind of brought this, this meeting together, was to give a sense that there's a lot of artificial life stuff out there that wouldn't normally fit into an A-Life conference but should be of some degree of interest. And, and that's actually a question, is how, uh, so as a biologist who works with undergraduates, who are quite playful mm -hmm. and who would embrace this sort of thing, uh, sort of where do I start, how do I guide them into uh, useful uh, projects at an undergraduate level messing with, the, with these or other very, very similar things. I think, it, I think that would be a venue where maybe with a graduate student, they're more interested in things that are so, biological. But with undergrads, the more playful it is, the better. So I'm interested in that as well. Here's the way I do it. Because um, within a month's time, a period of a month, I can be contacted between 2 to 12 students, sometimes undergraduate, sometimes graduate but want to get involved in overlay in some way. And the difficulty is that I don't have people such as yourself. I just have my own interaction with them, and I have a, a mailing list set up, and they can email other people that work with overlay and have other things solved through that. But basically, your, your point is critical, because you provide the biology, and we provide the environment, basically. So... You probably need to interact with these things as well and get a sense of them. But if they bring them to you, so much the better. Now, the way I have used Nubilate historically, and the way it's been picked up by universities that want to teach various things, typically not things that are biologically related, typically 
you know, how you get software into large companies or multimedia, real-time processing, these kind of things. Then um, there's always been a guiding element, but basically I will provide full support as well. So uh, in the case of coursework, for example, there was a fellow, um, University of Southern California, no, uh, San, San, San Diego, but it wasn't, San, it wasn't University of California, San Diego. Anyway, he had a class associated with multimedia learning. And Overlake was one of the things that he set for the students to look at. And uh, a combination of students, it was an interesting course because some of them were teaching-related students, others were just general BA students, wide combination of students, and they all took a different approach at how they... But it required his prompting on one regard and my assistance on another regard. So not like there's a lot of documentation. You can take it to any level you want. There's published documentation, there's academically published documentation, uh, there's a wide variety of stuff available online. They all explored a different element. So um, the teaching folk who were in that course got um, the original manuals, which detail the reasons that went into the like background philosophy, all the kind of depth stuff, written in 1997, available on Amazon for $6 or something now. Um, they went through that and um, created coursework based on that. The BA people were more interested in the multi-layer cooking and simulation philosophy aspects. So one of the things I do in Overload is philosophical satire. Philosophy has all these artificial dichotomies, which are just nonsense. So I put the dichotomies together and say so they're in the same simulation, go. You know, they're, they're there. They're, what you say is opposing, what you say is opposing, actually can coexist and give you more interesting results. Uh, visual arts took another aspect to it and these kind of things as well. So your interaction is critical, but certainly I'll provide support. And I think historically, um, some of them, and in terms of real world, the folks who've had children who've done artificial art development, you may not get necessarily the depth of support that you would get with someone like me, but you will typically get enough information. There are a wide variety of projects out there, um, and I think the, the play element is critical. So if you say to them, find an artificial life simulation, a lot of them exist in games too, but, you know, non-games as well, the stuff you know, that I do these kind of things, and start exploring what, what um, assumptions are made, for example, or uh, what level of biology is this element simulating, or describe how the weather affects the blood pressure, or all these kind of things in the simulation context. Is that backed up by certain science? You can do this at any level. When I first started developing Overlay, there were a number of 10 to 15 year olds who contact me about learning to program with Noble 8. Here's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm wearing the old school Noble 8 t-shirt. There is a new Noble 8 logo. Uh, within the past four months, I was contacted by a fellow who's an artist on The Simpsons. He's actually their highest artist for background drawing, what have you. He wants to learn to program. He picked up, I think, by a podcast or something. And he contacted me saying, I know you're extremely busy, but would you be interested in using Noble H to teach me how to program? Um, and I said, sure. You know, went through, found this guy's references. And after doing that process, because there's a lot of other, I mean, it's, it's written in C, fundamentally, there's Objective-C over there uh, for the, the math version. Um, he drew a number of representations of the Noble H. So I now have new graphics associated with that. But 
These kind of interactions don't typically happen. He's a, he's a rarity now. But you see, as um, and 15 years ago, learning to program was probably more relevant to 10 to 15 year olds than it is now, unfortunately. So you see a pattern of people getting in contact that have certain needs or interests or these kind of things. And I'm sympathetic to all of that. Any, any contact is positive. Um, and I'm pretty sure almost everyone that I've listed perhaps would be, aside from Steve Grant, I mean, Steve Grant in general, but if you talk to him about an old project, he's caught up in the new project now. But I think most of us are pretty contactful. But that's, that's really important because most people at the professional level or other academics, mm -hmm. right, there's, it's, you know, I only need grad students or I need an undergraduate, but I need them for exactly 10 weeks, mm -hmm. this 10 weeks, and they need to have this skill set at a time. There's a lot of barriers that I'm, I'm wondering, sort of, if the hobbyist community is interested in being in. Maybe that's the whole reason that they are hobbyists, is that they don't want to deal with that. So this is an important point. Um, in the initial example, when we were talking at the previous session, when we were talking about biologists, for example, of getting the biologists to come and study a simulation, I've like what happened. The point was made that the biologists want a justification associated with a wide variety of things, they want to know all these kind of things. And I make the point, oh, and the whole notion of um, what was assumed. So are you hard coding, are you predetermining these outcomes by the way that you've coded it? Historically, the same kind of argument has come from fundamentalist Christians as well. So you've got a biologist, you've got a fundamentalist Christian, they're basically making the same point. My view is um, there are certain things that, okay, so I said I'm very open and willing I'm not going to do your spot work for a particular thing. What I am open willing to do is assist someone who's interested in using this or someone who's taking it in a completely different direction. I'm fine with that. If you have curious, eccentric definitions that no like breaks, then that's something that you need to explore or you know the people around you need to explore. That's not something that the hobbyist I don't is going to do. What the hobbyist is going to do is, and this happens as well, I, I've got a full-time roboticist in the UK called Paul Potter who works on open light. He's added a lot of the stuff that I've shown. He's only interested in this specific set of things. My relationship with Paul Potter is I can say, this looks interesting, this looks interesting, this looks interesting. He'll do whatever else he wants. And he'll contribute to that. And I'm fine with that. So on some level, I think, in terms of interesting and motivating undergraduate students and potentially graduate students, in terms of doing what they're doing for you, I don't think that's the role of all this community. However, there may be the whole notion of reinventing the wheel is something that the artificial life community just and fair enough. I mean, you could argue that I reinvented aspects of polyglot without question. But if you are interested in doing some aspect of development with artificial life, starting afresh or designing all these components that never actually fit together versus interacting with an existing project and maybe creating your own. Different kind of discipline, basically. Um, and I would advocate strongly that people actually look at the existing projects, particularly Breve is a good example. Are we familiar with Breve and John Klein's work? He, he does a, a screensaver on, the, on a variety of platforms of kind of evolving Walker. But the underlying system is called Breve. I want to say artificial life seven, artificial life eight, but basically he's displayed this at multiple artificial life conferences. 
Inga as a family. If someone could pick up Brevet and work with that, within I, I don't think John Clay would have any problem with that. And I think basically the release kind of elements too. So my view is that if you can do something dramatically different, particularly with graphics, more power to you. But if you're basically creating cellular automata simulations, there are existing tools out there that do a variety of cellular automata situate simulations. Look to work within those. The barriers for entry are less as well. So rather than you know writing the C and writing all these things, you'll come to a simulation like Dolly, which does cellular automata simulation. And it will have an existing language and a graphical language in a variety of ways that you can actually write some literal topics without going and learning C if you've got what to learn C or these kind of things. So, yeah, that's probably another good point to make. Do we have any questions? Along those lines, it's in my situation. I discovered a blade of about three months ago. Figured it a little bit, not much. I look at it and I think, hey, if I'm watching all the things that I want to do, what can I do now? Okay, so what are your interests specifically? What are your interests specifically? Um, Agent-based simulations, I guess. Okay, but when you see it and you say, I want to do something with it, what is it that you want to do? Or you just want to do something? A little bit. I'd say, looking at Noble as it is right now, I would say I want to add something in there besides the apes. So this was one of the things that I put to Bob Montrum. Originally, the simulation had uh, predatory packs as well. There are, there's a wide variety of uh, flora and fauna in the simulation, but it's simulated through a biological simulation, which is different than the kind of distinct cognitive entities. So I put to Bob Mottram, because he was interested in this as well, that the, um, the reason that the cats were removed from the simulation was that they just killed all the apes very quickly. And it wasn't particularly fun. So I pulled them out early on. But I'd like to reintroduce them, particularly now because we have three levels of cognitive, well, we have three levels of, of brain simulation. Um, and you would probably eliminate almost all of the narrative language elements. You'd probably maintain some of the social simulation elements associated with social hierarchy and honor and these kind of things. And you would definitely maintain the cognitive simulation associated with fear and desire. You just scale them and change them, you change them elements. So I put to Bob, why don't we have the cats back and also small primates as well? Um, the slightly less than no apes or whatever, or monkeys or something, and you put back in. And you tweak some of the elements and you shrink the amount of language they can do, or you accentuate the fear components in their cognitive process and start manipulating that way. He had no interest in that. If that's something that interests you, I'm more than happy for you to pick that up. And I think it's something that is relatively easy to do. I mean, it's relatively easy to do if you've been developing it for 16 years, but if you come to it afresh, with about probably, well, it depends on how much time you spend on it. But, you know, looking around, and now there's additional oxygen and these kind of things, if you have background in C, you shouldn't have any problem pulling the elements together. Um, and that's certainly a very doable part. In fact, really, that's a multiplied sub project in terms of general level of interest. Um, the ability also, because the number is very much ground based, the ability to start using the plant life, uh, particularly for the smaller eggs and also the cats as an environment and actually making it far more multi-dimensional, multi-level in that interaction is all there too. So um, I would encourage you to, to, to make contact and to do that. Um, and certainly I'll, I'll give you all the support. Yeah, I'm Any questions? I mean, so, uh, I mean, in terms of artificial life, 
In the previous workshop space, I want everyone to give an introduction, which made it very easy to ask these kind of questions. Um, do we want to introduce ourselves and then talk about it in the context? I mean, do any of you have a, a sense or an interest in the hobbyist component of artificial life? Now it's been defined? Um, I've always, always looked at this, uh, I come from a game background. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's always been going into simulations and that kind of towards actual, real simulations that create the game is one that approximates things. We fake things to make things good, mm -hmm. not necessarily real interactions that way. And then I, I, I get across hypothesis um, type of work. And then and then I'm very interested in artificial intelligence with all the top down so Then I saw artificial life and I'm like, okay, the most kind of more interesting towards today. Like this idea of generating, I, I think I'm trying to decide what skill I want to start with. Um, it's you know the bottom being cellular operator, the universe having interacting, and then depending on how high you could kind of artificial chemistry below that as well, and like artificial uh, origins. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. 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 So I don't know. I don't know if I want to start in that area or if I want to move more into I predefined features and different traits. That part I don't know. But definitely bring in the type of world. I think my focus is that I want to see a lot of emergent structures and processes. That's not something I need to So that is, you know, fundamentally the, the essence of the artificial life populist, basically, is the wonder and emergence element. Well, and that's what I have been in the uh, academic demand of artificial life, consistent with. I just retired of a professor of computer science at the University of But I have started in the fall uh, grade, and I should have gone and started from somewhere else in simulation. I mean, I'm interested more in the technologies. It's interesting because the, the brain aspects, I talked with Tom Ray, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book, with Tierra. Um, he very much is looking now at the brain. And I've said since he did Tierra, a lot of the, I mean, you look at hypernemes in these kind of simulations, dealing very much with the brain as, well, in the case of hypernemes, um, symmetric neural networks, these kind of things. A lot of that, I would say, is really becoming part of it. The term artificial life is not an exact term, but I think it, it, that is now slowly encompassing with certain caveats to it. But anyway, continue. Okay, well, I started out with thinking about uh, what, what, what's a, how, do I, how do I give it an elevator, an elevator presentation? I can't really give an elevator presentation. But I guess, I guess what I started with is uh, an ancient based simulation. In I wanted to uh, be able to develop communities, communication among agents, build communities, sort of in the afternoon, sometimes, and by wanting to do it, 
the simplest possible universe you could imagine. That is difficult. You need the complexity in order to actually create the... Firstly, you have a problem where um, if, if it's sufficiently simple that the same, that multiple places in the simulation can appear to be the same yeah. through simplicity, yeah. then you'll have immediate confusion. You need an element of uniqueness associated with the places, um, which means... You can, you can do that. Yeah. If you have the numbers, it's the worst. Yes. Which we have. Um, but that's almost well, like okay, a great... So, so, so I'm, I'm talking now, like 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. I'm right, which is probably beyond my activity level. But it seems to me that we are at the point where you can actually simulate... Well, okay, my, the name of my conscience, my, 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 my project is the simulation of consciousness in artificial world, mm-hmm. social. So so we have to build and, and the only way you can get consciousness, and I know I can see it, so it's only that ever they develop it. I have a consciousness in which I can't find. I don't know the definition. And there are huge conferences on the right. Well, it's it's one of these perfect philosophical terms for selling books because yeah. you can create the internal paradoxes and just run with them. Question to you: How componentized is your implementation? What I've done is I've taken elements of Noble Eight and elements of Polyworld and put them together. I've taken the Noble Eights out of Noble Eight and put them in Polyworld and see how they've interacted. And I've extracted the sea monkeys from Polyworld and put them into the Noble Eight environment. Are there elements that you could take from your simulation and put it into an existing artificial life simulation that had either the existing environment or take a, a, an entity from the existing artificial life simulations and put them into your environment? Okay, well that's not really, that's not... Um, that's not really yeah. No, but, but, okay, my idea is uh, to, to develop, well, first you have to develop a good, good base so that the creatures have to have journeys and they have to, they have to have abilities of doing whatever they can do mm-hmm. with the universe. The universe is a discrete, um, If, if you want to get enough computational power to be somewhat close to here to do something that functions, you need very, very lot of computational power. If you're going to evolutionary development, that's going to require a lot of computational power. So what you have to do is something like, is create a game that everyone would like to play. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if, if you can create a game that everyone would like to play, Download it, and then everyone has their own development and say, "Well, I can, I will add this thing or this component to the thing, and then so that there there being the real power." Then, of course. So here's another question to you: Would observing the environment 
be also something of interest. Because yeah, it would have to be. If observing the environment was something of interest, and if you extracted that, then you would have two classes of players. You'd have the class of players that were interested just in in it as visual, you know, interest. And then you have the class of players, and that way you double or triple or quadruple your computing power because basically you have the people that are interested just seeing it as a screensaver, and then you have the others that are interested in tinkering. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. I do not have that. The visual component is also interesting because in order to make a successful game, for example, you need a certain amount of either visual imagery or a richness and complexity that will make people want to interact with it. Now, you seem to be describing the latter. But any element you can add on the former. The former is yes. more important, obviously, from yeah. the point of view of getting high scores to play that. Right? Certainly. Right. The, the other part that's been put to me with no blame is would it be possible through something like Second Life, for example? Second Life is an open yeah. client interface. To have a node lake simulated environment with the node lakes in the environment and have you as an entity in the environment interacting with the node lakes as well. See, I don't know anything about node lakes. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of it. So, mm -hmm. so but in your example, that's so, so what's a node lake? What is, I mean, this is not, to me, that would very interesting. <laughs> well, it's because, okay. This is your problem too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, this is exactly like that. But, 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 but this you could. I mean, if you can, if you can find, uh, uh, if you if you can get someone from from, from uh, uh, the Simpsons uh, mm -hmm. helping you, I mean, surely he, he could give you the graphics. Well, yes. This is the notion. Of, this is the notion of what you get with what you get. You yes. should be thankful for what you get. So That's what right. I got was a few drawings. So um, the iteration is the important part. So, Noble Lake is basically what you've described, except the environment is complex. Right. Uh, I think it's really important that not Well, I disagree because the. the, 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 the and the reason that Bob Ottram contributed to Noble Lake, the roboticist in the UK, was primarily because he saw far too much simplicity in the other environments, and he thought in order to get. So, in a previous workshop, we were discussing the idea of changing single parameters. So if you had exactly the same genetically, absolutely the same contents of entities in the simulated environment, and you change the landscape to make it more harsh, and then you set the simulation to run, would the societies evolve or develop differently? Yes. And yes. of course. So, but it's not that you then simplify the environment and then see how it happens. The, the textures, after, after this conference I'm spending a week here, but then I'm going to um, uh, University of Illinois to work with a paleobiologist who I've been working with for about a decade now. And he points out that actually the complexity is where the evolution takes place. That if you have a simple system, the, you don't have the, the hills to climb. If you, if you, if once you develop a social system, mm -hmm. that gives you a lot of hills to climb. It doesn't need a physical Difficult. You don't need complicated physics. I mean, well, it, look at isolated prisoners, for example. What you are doing is creating a completely, like a padded cell, and you're putting cognitive entities in a completely padded environment and then saying, evolve detail from this constrained environment. Whereas what you want is an environment that will motivate 
both physical and social evolution, but what you were talking about specifically, as I do, love like this associated social evolution. Yeah, and the environment is critical to that. So there is a component here, like uh, rumors, for example. There's a thing that I'm working with currently that I'd like to associate with rumors. So um, the parental relationships are relatively ingrained, associated with feeding and early stage development when they're in the same presence of their, their parents. But after a period of time, there is an idea in the language that anecdotes could be added. And there's a rich kind of oral history component to it as well. Um, so after a period of time, there's a potential for an anecdote to be added where your parent is not really your parent. Your parent is someone else. And this you see um, ripple through the, the society and the individual in terms of how that information is passed on. So there are certain things which are related to just social groups interacting together, but the actual environment, gathering food, basic survival, all these elements which need to be relatively difficult or at least challenging to some Yes. So, so if you have a vanilla environment where they're just basically sitting around eating flat land, not a lot of interest. Well, you, you have to have something to pop. So, so what is, what is the problem? Well, you give a different vibe. Who is, well, who eats easily, for example. Ah, a predator. So, well, I mean, number one, you can have a five, you can put in 500 pieces of this mm -hmm. into the, the very simple meal. So, as, as, we were talking about, as we were talking about with the cats and the apes and what have you, the nature of predation is that the environment creates elements of that predation as well. So if you had a lion and a mouse in a box, even a particularly large box, you throw in multiple lions, multiple mice, same environment, flat, easy, the outcomes are going to be relatively clearly determined. You put a forest in there with brown foliage, uh, weather, uh, a line that doesn't like particularly getting wet, uh, you add in a variety of other factors that the environment provides, and you'll have a considerably more interesting simulation, probably something that will actually create the... the you want time here. Well, you, you want time, time and difficulty. But I would argue that without the environment, and if level of complexity in the environment, you are not going to see the elements that you want Emerging. Well, okay. If, if you, okay. If our idea is right now we've dropped and the, the nodes can have resources. Mm -hmm. So you can put in any number of resources. Mm -hmm. Right. Typically, we only put them one. And they have to, if you don't need that, that resource, then they're going to start. That's an only real concern. So this is pre-Cambrian evolution fundamentally. Well, this, this, this would, oh yeah, yeah. 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 Pre, uh, it would be 4000 BC. I mean, yes, yeah, pre-Cambrian. Exactly. Yeah, one of the two. Yes, yes. Um, but I mean, that's that's all you can hope for. The thing is, if you can, what you want to do is to give them the little problems that they have to solve. So that they have to interact, they have to cooperate. They and they can cooperate a lot more easily if they have communication, which is something that has got mentioned uh, in the last session by 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 Academy. If you have cooperation, you've got to have communication. Without question. And the next thing is you have to build a community. Now, once you've got a community, 
environment, very complicated environment to work. And it was also the type of environment that if you think about what, what causes consciousness, what's the point of being conscious unless well, you're dealing with unless you're dealing with other beings or other things that are that there's some good reason for you to be conscious of so that you can understand that that you and I are very similar kind of beings, right? If you don't have that, there's no real I can't I mean, what's the, uh, I can't think of what the advantage of consciousness is. Why didn't it evolve? That's a fantastic. My understanding is it was to do the evolution. I mean, this is why I'm meeting with a fellow in Illinois. My conversations with him indicated that it was uh, working out feeding grounds. That was the first movement towards motivated movement and intelligence and survival. And that is the origin. Exactly. So, 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 so there are origins of consciousness, I think, in, in, I mean, they're accepted at some level. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think they're very, very good. And philosophers know, because that won't sell books, but I think if you look at the... Some would have a good, good solution, I think some would have a I don't think anyone has a good idea. So, I mean, you see, but my, my goal is to make it so that you can, you can study develop an environment where you can study this kind of idea with this with this uh, without you where you can study uh, the evolution of these ideas. Okay? So I mean to to bottom for example, one of the things that we that we do. You, you read about, and you want to say, well, why, why, why did the altruism evolve? Well, it evolved all the time. Because it's really useful to cooperate. And actually, I'm not 100% so sure that you really do need communication to develop cooperation. Well, it depends what your definition of communication is. It's really, really useful. Communication would develop so that you could cooperate quite effectively. It might actually run the other way. Well, communication doesn't involve speech. It just means that communication doesn't involve anything other than a means of conveying information in some fashion. But the idea of chemistry here is, is interesting as well. What role does simulated chemistry play in your environment? So what 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 is your origin in terms of, is it neural networks, or how does it... So, how do you, what's the building Maybe, I mean, if you want to add a neural network to James. That sounds a little bit too complicated from what you're talking about. You're talking about more fundamental origins. So, in that sense, what, what motivates the production of consciousness in your simulation? Trying to keep a community. Developing communities. Okay, but so. It's a main goal. It was it's the first, the first big goal. What does your individual look like? Or entities? No, I mean, what is it? Like, what is it composed of? Or what is the kind of thing? It's something that is a set of powers or actions that, that it can take. Okay. And what it's doing. So those actions yeah. include, like, communicating, you can communicate from one to another. Mm -hmm. we, well, at this point, we haven't had it. Well, that's actually communicating. In the immediate future, 
But that would be good in that way. We are getting the power of being able to send three messages one to another. And you they will have but the postman will have to have that power, right? And then you and want them to communicate on their own meaning. You want them well, what well, they well. talk about would be up to them. Yes, sir. You just want to be able to revert. And presumably, I mean that could be one bit. This is good or this is bad, right? And then, we have not worked out yet. How do you how do you how do you specify the location three steps away? How do you get there? And as we have to develop the language for that. There are all sorts of things that need to be developed without having I mean that's dealing with the physics of the matter. But it seems to me that that's the simpler physics of the you can develop. And then thus we don't have location. That's, that's, the, the simpler thing would be not to have any location at all. So I, 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 I said I, I couldn't see how I knew that opportunity was. But I thought the minimum thing that we need is location. So do the entities exist as a script of components? Is that the way that you were describing them in terms yeah, of? given a set of powers. OK. So the powers are all can be specified as well. Um, specific individuals. Could you describe a couple of powers? Move. I can move from here to in the direction that I'm facing to the next side. It's a very, very simple, very simple idea. You can move from this cell to the neighboring cell. You can eat. Is there an idea of a direction facing? Um, there is that idea, concept of direction facing yes. But we don't have. If you work on a grid, you have used, if you put a bit of a grid type things, then you do have the concept of move left, move right, turn left, turn right. There's a concept of eat, there's a concept of consume another part, you have So for one of our simulations, we have grass, sheep, and wolves. It's surprisingly hard to get these to, to, to work. So grass is, uh, and just consumed energy at the fall of the sheep have to eat grass. The wolves have to eat the sheep. Certainly. In terms of moving diagonally, is there any change? You can, you can choose it either way. Okay. Is there so any you can change you can change your grass structure. Mm -hmm. So a movement diagonally would be an, an advantage. Rather oh, than oh, oh, yeah, but either either everyone can use that edge or can but, I mean, that would be like two steps. Exactly, that's the point so, I'm so, making. So, yes, so uh, mm -hmm. we have not so far allowed any of us to have multiple steps in one thing. Turn base. And the advantage of Java for you is that you have a, a visual interface that runs on a web page or these kind of things? Well, I don't have a web page. Okay. You, yes, you can, you can, you can watch, if you put, all the, put it on a grid, you can watch it. Or even if you put a little indicator graph, you can draw the graph, you can watch the other points of movement, etc. That's not, if you don't have a, it's quite good base, or more or less good base. It's not really, uh, would be very interesting. So there's a fellow called Joe Riem, who, Joe Riem, I'll, I'll pass on your details, take, um, 
think they're my details and I'll pass them on. Um, Joe developed, I think, a simulation called Scary Park, which seems to be very, very similar to what you're describing, but it had the visual interface. So it was a, a grid system with a, so this is me, um, it was my email. Okay. Um, it was a grid system, and as you've described in terms of the grass, uh, the predation, uh, and the bugs, he had a rule set. So what you could do is take his visual interface, because he's a graphic artist, and you could write your underlying rule structure to his visual interface. So um, let me see, actually, because I have the internet, and I don't forget to find it. Mm -hmm. This is it. Uh, let's see if he's probably... He might have actually pulled the underlying... Yes, I think he might have pulled it. This is someone else. Uh, but I could certainly put him in contact with him. Um, because he still has the code, and I'm sure he'd be... He's actually won awards for some of his games uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he had, an early, he had as, as you described, grid system with bugs, grass, uh, various uh, food quantities. I think represented as strawberries, but it's been easy to look And you could write the underlying principles. And I'm pretty sure it's a Java interface. I mean, the icons are discrete, so you could do what you want with it. That's why I wanted to ask you I mean, if you try to make something that's interesting, that's visually interesting, you always have to make it two-dimensional. Well, you could make it three-dimensional. Well, rather than any dimension. Yes. You know, in mind, we have a graph that's not really embeddable on the surface. And this all graphs are embeddable on the surfaces. It's still, the surfaces can be extremely convoluted. <laughs> So Jeffrey Ventrilla also did things associated with previous 2D artificialized simulations mapped onto speeders. And that in and of itself provides an interesting problem space. But he has done quite a bit of work on that, and I think he's published recently on that. So I could certainly put you in contact with Jeffrey as well. Uh, because he's very interested in two-dimensional artificial life platforms and spheres and the interactions of well, spheres. Well, true. Like, well, I mean, that's easy to do. That's true. To be a yes. But anyway. But, but anyway, yes. Um, but the idea of having someone who's got really good uh, ethics for it is kind of But, um, my so this is the idea, the idea is much to support the Exactly. So this is the idea that we've discussed associated with open source. Yeah. And also, you know, Salesforce yeah, yeah, GitHub, there are a wide variety of sites that uh, yeah, that will facilitate that. Really yeah. It's the one I've used and I've maintained it. But now GitHub is the, the new one to use. What's the new one? G-I-T-H-U-B. 
H-U-B. Do you have a 3D world where you're using photoplank position for everybody? Or is it a 3D grid? As far as it looks like it's a vertical space within the grid. So it's like you're creating the grid and this particular box has a tile of slope on it, and the ape is in this box, and then this one? No. It's a full 3D. Okay. So you can't show it here. That's the top. The normal ape? That's okay, but that's. Yeah, it doesn't look like any apes. No, it's a point in space. It's a little little red guy. Uh, around, little red guy in the middle there. Perfect. That's, that's his area. That's the end. Uh, this, this, this uh, animation is the brain structure? Yes, this is the cognitive simulation. Which is the, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, to try and do as much possible. So what, 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 is the, what is the brain structure doing? So this is the, um, what it's doing here is it has a series of sensors and actuators. Sorry, I have to run it from the command line. But it has a series of sensors and actuators that are passing information through. And um, based on the, the principles of fear and desire, the sensors and actuators. So what you're seeing is a delta. This is uh, like a control map of, of what is going through. So um, this is where there, it's dreaming. So it has a different uh, cognitive simulation. So you don't see the structure here, just what's going to find mm -hmm. Exactly. So you can actually see the clouds of information coming as they oh. pass through. So, so the, the, the brain is therefore something about, about 20 by 20 by 20 or something? Uh, 32 by 32 by 32. It's probably easier if I run it not from the command line. Uh, and that way I can actually... I can actually... 32k. And you've got, you've got a few dozen of these guys. I've got... Uh, well, this is, this is what Apple and Intel used initially, is they wanted to optimize the cognitive simulation for their specific processes. So um, the mathematics that goes on associated with fear and desire, so let me just pause this in there, an interesting point. So you can, um, I've got to rotate in here as well, so you can move it around and get a sense of space. And the ones that are uh, heavily highlighted are the ones that are closest to you. So the ones that are behind are, are less highlighted. So yeah, so you can get the spatial dimension and you okay. get a sense of... What are the three dimensions? Um, did the apes actually interact with in? Well, no, no. That, that, that brain, what do the three-dimensional brain represent? It represents uh, a, a agar, petri dish-like substance with sensors and actuators, and it represents the information transfer between these points. So what you have is a 32 by 32 by 32 um, vessel with points within the vessel that are sensors and points within the vessel that are actuators. And the sensors transmit through to get to the actuators, the position responds accordingly. And they have um, uh, both, well, this is kind of a 20 minute talk, but let me try to answer. I'll put you on the paper associated with this. Yeah, yeah, but don't copy what I Yeah, so, um, but in short, there are two mathematical processes that are operating. One that is associated with fear, that is, uh, I can actually show this to you. Um, so, you can set it for just fear, and that basically is very fast reactive through the brain. And then you can set the just desire component, uh, and that also, unfortunately, because we've already spoken. Um, is pretty reactive in that case, but um, that is uh, that is 
So the feeder component is reactive. The desire component um, is more associated with like long-term connection. Um, it's difficult to describe uh, more than that. How else would I describe desire specifically? They work against each other, basically. So fear is reactive, and desire is over a long period of time. And spatially, the mathematics behind them, uh, fear is the DT, and desire is a, is a DS relationship um, in, the, in the cognitive simulation. But that's what you're seeing in terms of the interaction there. Um, okay, so you see the emotion there, mm -hmm. and then, but, the, but they're doing things in some other mm -hmm. universe that, that's hidden, right? No, this is the, this is the, um, this is the command, well, the way that you can access is easy, the most easy fashion is through the command line version now. So through the command line version, um, you get access to the, the underlying elements. Um, so you have every ache in the simulation uh, displayed here, and from that you can get, uh, let's see, uh, the social graph information, the underlying brain code that's being run over a particular time, uh, the vascular information. Wow. Uh, so basically there's an underlying biological simulation within them. Uh, Your uh, input set is coming from external factors and internal mm -hmm. lines. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And then the output, those outputs tie to movement and like, how I, I'm not clear on the output, because obviously you're moving in certain directions, mm -hmm. you're turning, but So their relationship to, as, as we're talking associated with social, their relationship to other apes will motivate their movement, their relationship to feeding grounds will motivate their movement, a variety of factors will motivate their movement. They also, um, so what I've showed you initially is what I call the cognitive simulation, which is the sphere desire component. There is also a social simulation, which is based on Cynthia Brazil's social robotics, where they have uh, like a sense of honor, but also they have a sex drive, uh, they have a social drive, they have a hunger drive, and they have one other drive. Same social hunger for tea. And that basically is a scalar measurement associated with those factors that motivate the movement as well. They also have um, a narrative engine, which is both an internal language and also an external language. But in terms of an internal language, they have an idea of themselves, which is one of these programs that they run. But also, I think the 12 apes that they have most contact with or are their, their most, they have enemy relationships with, so either very strong friends or very strong enemies, they have an internal representation of what that ape is in a narrative sense as well. So all these things might make their movement. When, when you, um, so, and so when you start the simulation, every ape has exactly the same sort of formula and empty weights. Different, okay, initially, um, random DNA, typically, uh, sometimes newly group DNA is populated, that's another thing. Their internal narrative uh, can either be structured or wiped. There are a variety of initial characteristics that you can start with. But that's basically, and they are all the same age initially as well. And the, the DNA that you're talking about, so let's say, let's take the sphere mm -hmm. or formula, I guess is the other one it is, right? The DNA represents different um, coefficients in that formula, but like how does everyone react? With exactly the same way. So the DNA is interesting. Um, intentionally, it's a smaller than representative DNA. So you have DNA which is not present, in, is not known at the time the simulation starts, but can be discovered after the fact through interrogating it. Where um, 
their ability to eat shellfish, for example, can be connected to their desire to find a mate of a particular body part. There are a wide variety of underlying factors that all come from this genetic subset that all is, that is fundamentally intertwined. And the way in which that was selected was done through various probabilistic elements. I can talk more about that if you're interested. But um, it means that the effect of DNA isn't always, or positive isn't always all negative, but is there. And typically, for long-term simulations, I will run the simulation for about 500 to 1,000 simulated years, which gives you, you know, tens of generations worth of overlays through that. Uh, and what you see in all but really harsh social environments is really strong clans forming. It becomes like Scotland in, you know, the Middle Ages. And from that, you have a wide variety of quite strange things that emerge. I want to add in the classic kind of Sin City, Hand of God, natural disaster to eliminate some of the clans, or at least perturb them. But it moves very strongly into a clan and then completely like creating their own idioms and environment uh, from that in very long term. And you interact no. So my role has always been in a in a godlike fashion, yeah. you know, over the top, what have you. I'm really fascinated by the ability to do through something like um, Second Life and Open Sim to have a Nodalate simulated environment. And finally, the visual rendering of the Nodalates is the hardest thing to do. So all the stuff that goes into narrative, and you may have seen the previous screen, the episodic memory, you know, such and such student thing and these kind of things is <laughs> Linguistic, and it's very, it's far easier for me to generate a detailed narrative than it is to generate a picture of an overlay using a twig. That is, um, getting the Simpsons guy involved initially, but also, I mean, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, getting Pixar or, you know, going and giving a talk and getting people inspired to contribute that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, that's a dream. That's a dream kind of element. Is it an underlying world that we have here? Mm -hmm. It's a two dimensional world. No, it's, it's three-dimensional, it has height and weather, uh, and plant life also provides a dimensionality element to it as well. Yes, yeah. The, the thing that interests me, um, my background is physics and philosophy. So my interests come from mathematical simulation physics and philosophy. Not biology, not computer science, not all these other elements. So in terms of the simulation elements, in terms of numerical simulation, that was something that started off very early. The uh, Cognitive Simulation, which is fundamentally numerical simulation, the landscape generation, the weather simulation, the weather simulation was slightly later, and the biological simulation. The biological simulation is based on quantum mechanics. So what you have is a landscape, and at any point in the landscape, you create an argument associated with probability of a tree existing there, or a mouse existing there, or some grass existing there. And you do that by saying, at this point, there is this height above sea level, there is this surface area, there is this angle to the tracking sun. There are all these things that that point has, which are fundamentally mathematical components. And in combination, that gives a probability that a grass will exist at that particular point. You then have a noise map, which is either a moving noise map, in the case of mice, for example, or a static noise map, which is the case of trees. And then you have um, the noise map has a growth component to it as well. So that's how the trees grow, basically. But aside from the uh, gradation, in the gradients of mathematical information, there's also uh, an underlying noise element that um, produces the specificity associated with a particular point. Um, so that was the that was the biology 
again, um, a difficult watch from pain to the simulation. My view with Overlake was that it was very much about taking different simulation ideas and putting it into practice. Paul brought a lot of existing academic work that he has put with that as well, and I think the two components is quite well. But within that as well, I mean, for example, the internal structure, um, the heart rate, the, the blood flow algorithms, he has blood flow algorithms associated with um, diameters of, you know, flexibles and what have you. I mean, he's gone into extreme lengths to create the heart rate simulation and the, the, the whole internal. Um, uh, let, me, let me bring that up. I think I did that with vascular, didn't I? Show you vascular. So this is not all, this is not run. Let's even run it for a minute. Uh, and then maybe vascular won't be the one. But this shows you for this specific age, this is slightly more interesting. Uh, is vascular simulation running uh, within it? Um, I think there's actually underlying mathematics to simplify the vascular simulation. So it interests me now, particularly for Bob's contribution, is actually getting quality time and creating new simulation methods internally for, for their you know, organs in existence as well. The temperature that the blood to. Yep. Yeah. Bob is very detail oriented. <laughs> it's nice because then one gets to focus on the area they're interested in. But that extra thing adds, um, <laughs> it makes your thing deeper. The area you, you want to look at philosophical dichotomies, this has an effect. It's not obvious. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, this is changing. Oh, yeah. This is changing. Oh, yeah. So, this is the essence of the hobbyists. You know. <laughs> Another 10,000 years of, mm -hmm. of this mm -hmm. in, in, in uh, a week or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. You've got, you've got uh, a hundred or a few hundred apes. I, I can't recall because the workshops and things are kind of all melding together. But uh, I mentioned at one stage the idea, I think it was the, with the previous group, of um, historical narrative for mythology. So through the way the narrative engine works, the ape can have a representation of another ape that it's never met previously. So in real time, a group of apes go and have a dispute with another ape, come back and tell another group of apes, and then the other group of apes know about the first one. This is even more interesting over lifetimes. If you have particular apes that are eulogized and particular apes that are demonized, and these can become, so recently, a couple of days ago, I was trying to follow something in the simulation, and there was this ape that had, was really heavily eulogized, and she had, I couldn't get access to the ape, because the ape had died, you know, 15, 20 days previous, but still was part of a discussion that was going on, and the same exists in time as well. So we have actually modern communication between the apes. Yes. So their internal narrative is, is not the same as, but it's the same language as their external narrative. I was working with a, a kind of futurist linguist fellow who was so, he, he basically said, you are your language. And he then, in some kind of conversation, created a challenge that Noble Ape, without language, didn't explain the universe as he understood it, so, you know, language was a necessary component. At the same time, Bob and I both had a background with Cold War, are you familiar with Cold War? And these kind of things. So the language element of Noble is very much like Cold War, with a few eccentricities added in. Um, and these scripts are run, basically, as, as language, both as external communication, and also this internal simulation that the apes have 
amongst the apes that they've had contact with. So they actually have a conversation with the model. <laughs> exactly. So there's the interesting part about this is that when you have these eulogized apes, they will have a conversation with this eulogized ape, or at least run an interaction with that ape, which is how they continue on. So you can get... The, the thing that interests me in, in this is the notion of uh, deities, mythology, and... Well, firstly, um, they make mistakes through narrative both within internal narrative and also external narrative. Um, there's a circumstance, parental relationships are interesting. I think I used this as an example through this conversation already. But if they, um, if they are told that someone who is, is not their parent, or someone is their parent who they previously haven't connected to as their parent, it has a very strong effect internally within them. Uh, because basically the parental relationships, just through the constructions that I've described, are relatively strongly ingrained as well. How, how is it done? Like they have a model of what they think their parent is, and then they map it on top of the screen? No. So what happens typically is um, they receive an anecdote with a reference to their parent that is not the person who is their parent, which has occurred either in an error in an anecdote that someone else has occurred. Error here is not a computational error. It is a mutation of the, the anecdote. Uh, and that, in and of itself, um, creates huge schisms. So, for example, I was doing a demonstration with a group earlier, and I accounted this perfectly. Um, one ape had, through rumour, heard that her father was not her father, and this immediately created an internal conflict because she now, firstly, she disregarded her father. She now had a new father, and the father's narrative and her narrative with her mother, internal narrative, were contradictory, so she then started hating her mother, based just on this rumour. And you could track this in process. I mean, it's a beautiful illustration. But you see these kind of interactions. I find this... I... I... You see, I originally looked at this a few weeks ago. I approached, I contacted Bob Bottrom because I said, I'm, I'm coming by life, I'm going to be doing this demonstration. And there's all this crazy father of such and such, which is how it represents itself. Because normally it'll just say father, but it'll say father of such and such, where such and such is the ape who is the ape. I'm like, there are these apes that hate. Their father, but then they say that they're friends with their father of such and such, which is them. And he said, This is the phenomenon. You have a circumstance where they've been told that someone is not their father. My suspicion is that this is probably too prevalent. And the current simulation, this happens as well, where you see certain things which are just statistically too prevalent, and then, you know, things need to be altered because. Um, it's a very, the whole notion of language, and particularly if you look at Core War as, a, as an idea, what we are doing here, we've kind of taken a subset of Core War uh, and added uh, other elements. For example, the, there are sensor and actuator components which are very similar to Core War's mathematical operators anyway. Uh, there's a data component which is identical to Core War's data component. But there, is, um, there are additional elements that Bob has added, and one of them is associated with anecdote, which has a different prevalence in the way in which the script is propagated. And my suspicion is that the anecdote, particularly associated with parents, 
It's just too strong currently. So what we could be seeing, and what is used as an example here, but you're also using other thing. When that happens to the ape, the way in which you find the ape, which isn't good currently because it's not food, run it for 10 days while I'm uh, talking. What, um, there's a hierarchy that the simulation creates, but Bob created a kind of scale hierarchy associated with um, Epic, which is you are being talked about. So the ape which has the most conversation about it is promoted to the top of the Epic graph. So funny enough, the apes that are typically promoted to the top of the Epic graph are also the apes that discover that their parents aren't their parents. So there's a kind of false thing where in the simulation of um, 100 apes, the ones that I keep seeing are the ones that had this factor. So really, percentile-wise, 1% total simulation. Actual effect-wise, propagates them up because all the other apes communicate. So there are all these kind of things where um, you get these effects and then you have to say, is it a tuning issue? Is it a propagation issue? Is it because you're just looking at that specific ape that is propagated through these things? And the metrics that you have to create a social hierarchy promote that. The other thing is honor, and honor is separate. Honor was originally um, a grooming idea. It's a social currency. So uh, one ape would groom another ape and their honor would increase. And that while they didn't have any primary access to their honor, the other apes had a general sense of how honorable the ape was. It's kind of a theory of quality that's mapped onto something. This was very much Bob Ottram's introduction to, to Noble Ape, and it comes from social robotics from Cynthia. Um, it then started developing quite an interesting metaphor. There's almost a kind of alpha-like quality in the honor. But you can create a social hierarchy that has honor as its basis, and you get a different social hierarchy than being talked about by and the point I made to the fellow earlier, the biologist earlier, was that you can create your own social hierarchy functions and see whichever comes up top. It's not necessarily that there's a natural social hierarchy because honor is one thing, being talked about is another thing. You could probably try to convolute both of them, but basically they exist as separate entities. <laughs> this is the other thing. That... <laughs> Certainly, at one point, it's going to be like, oh, I just. Yeah, yeah I've heard a lot of noble in my time. I don't sleep any harder at night than I ever did. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, I mean, these, these kind of things are interesting as well. The, um, the movement into robotics, I think, is very interesting. So, I think Paul Bob can come to me from robotics and develop software. But I think. The movement from this into robotics is interesting as well. The hobbyist robotics community is really, I think, the artificial-like hobbyist community needs to look at the hobbyist robotics community uh, as a really vibrant um, and distinct entity from the industrial robotics community. Um, and I think that's something that's interesting as well. Are you kind of familiar with the hobbyist robotics community? So, I mean, there are magazines and things that you may see in passing, but it's very much the idea that anyone can build a robot, anyone can write the underlying logic, uh, anyone can start, um, you know, programming it remotely and these kind of things. And it's basically an empowering, you know, technical movement associated with getting people building robots. And I think, you know, the artificial life hobbyists could have a similar element to it as well. Um, we were talking in the first workshop associated with web artificial life um, academic community, and how there's now a hobbyist with artificial life community, which is distinctly different, but again motivating people into potentially into web artificial life academia as well. Um, 
Anyway, I'm not sure. Set it to run for 10 days, and this may be a little bit too long to actually illustrate. But, um, I, I mean, I can show you the, the epic and. Uh, oh, it's definitely one for seven days. Yeah, at least seven days. Um, there we go. So, you can see um, these are the top honor apes, and these are the most talked about apes. And these are actually distinctly different groups. There's actually not a lot of conversing about specific apes going on currently. After 10 days, sometimes, and this is typically in this correct false period case, you will have um, epic um, numbers of 100 plus, uh, because really that kind of information just travels like one part. Um, again, um, back to the points associated with, with your specific simulation, the complexity of the land environments and the weather and all these underlying conditions affects the social interactions um, not just in terms of feeding grounds, but also kind of, you know, effects, additional effects, basically. Um, their relationship to uh, territorial space and these kind of things is really important, but relates directly um, to land surface and the biology that exists in the particular areas, um, particular rock pools, I mean, these kind of things in terms of their interaction. And I think um, I do have a version of the simulation which just provides a flat plan with no weather, with the apes running around, and they very quickly start doing things that you see with kind of caged animals. You know, they'll start running in circles and doing these kind of things, and it really is quite curious that the lack of environment, lack of rich environment. So how do you decide, how do they decide what, what they're going to do next? Well, they're motivated by a variety of factors. Um, they're initially, initially, um, they, it's difficult to describe the language, but they have a need for exploration. They also have an underlying hunger need. Uh, they have, well, as, as I understand. What do they need to dominate? So, yes, here we have hunger, fatigue, social, sex. Uh, and these are relieved through different things and different interactions, and the dominant need. Um, well, hunger is not, hunger can't be overridden, basically. Hunger and exhaustion basically create circumstances. Um, well, hunger and fatigue, social circumstances as well, but hunger primarily and fatigue are two elements that can't be withheld. Um, they, they have to eat after a period of time. Um, if they're in water, it becomes even more interesting. They have to find land. Typically, there are certain circumstances of panic and these kind of things that can come through the environment as well and progresses you know, through, um, through their existence. Um, so you've got a location, you've got the direction they're facing. Mm -hmm. You've got four drives they have to satisfy. Body attention, so that's what they're thinking about. Yes. And the relationship attention. Which is what they're thinking, and, yes. And this one has been thinking about the granddaughter only in the whole 10 days. Actually, no. Uh, just about. Okay. Friends and enemies. The episodic memory. And then I address it, what they remember. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that goes away. Mm -hmm. Well, it's based it's on waiting. That's what they do now, it's worth talking about something. Mm -hmm. And then waiting is based on the language. Mm -hmm. They have their own internal language. Mm -hmm. now, how many things is it? Okay, so they have 12 including themselves. 12, 12 entities including themselves. 
So the entities are typically populated by the friends and enemies list, and this site just doesn't have a particularly large friends and enemies list at this time. If we went to, um, let's see whether we'll talk about names. So, so when they have interactions with the external, it obviously informs their internal model too. Does it use the internal as a filter to the external, or is it talk to the external It's a talk to the external, well, it's a talk to the external up to the internal part. There's also, it's, in terms of um, the, the, the underlying narrative, is uh, a comparison of two things at all at every time. So typically, what it is is um, okay when they're interacting with the external. I think it is the external communicating their internal view of the external, which is then communicated internally within them. So basically, it's a one-to-one -one mapping of an execution together, and then the perception. Yes. Yes. I think I've got that right. Yeah. 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 So there's always a comparison. Yes. Yes. And then, yeah. Um, which means that there are certain circumstances, belief is an interesting term in this context. There's a certain circumstance where the internal code will take dominance over what the external code because it's run in parallel. And it, as with Cold War, you know, you have those kind of patterns, basically. Um, but yes. It, the memory node is very much like what they can say to each other. The episodic memory can be accessed through... Okay, so, as with Cold War, the episodic memory is a data access that it can then reintroduce into the program and uh, communicate. So, yes, they have access to the episodic memory, and the, their access to the episodic memory is through this script which they then can communicate. So, in the case of the parent anecdote, my assertion still working on it, is that that has a dominance in the in the um, narrative engine communication that then propagates it through it passes through multiple ways, so it becomes a, an ongoing anecdote rumor that circulates. I haven't seen anything about parents in, in the episode. Uh, so here, for example, unless the parents are explicitly stated. They, well, typically, parents are in. Okay, so the way the simulation starts is that they're all the same age. Their relationships with parents come through interaction and recollection of child, of an adult that is born through the simulation and raised by parents will have an immediate parent relationship by their interaction, which is reinforced by their interaction. But what you have here is a group of adult apes that are mysteriously thrust into the simulation. So, yes. Um, which is curious as well because um, for the first generation cycle, even the second generation cycle, you will have them having relationships with apes that don't necessarily exist in the simulation. So the ape that was concerned about granddaughter may not have actually had a granddaughter that existed in the simulation, it is just a... Yeah. Um, similarly, it gets, more, it gets much more interesting when you actually have the family relationships within the simulation, and uh, that creates another level. Um, in terms of the movement to um, kind of plans and these kind of things, my view is that what you have there is kind of superpositioning your family relationships on everything. 
almost a kind of crippling based on family relationships. And then um, I was running a simulation uh, when I went to and came back recently, and you had these kind of clusters of children around parents and these kind of things. They were young, they were young children we just left them to see. Uh, but, you know, this very much kind of socializes uh, a family oriented which becomes planets more, more broadly. How long between uh between well through natural causes about thirty two simulated years uh, for, based on defects up to about forty eight simulated years. And this was just ten days or ten uh, this was just ten days. Yeah. Can you yeah. Uh, zoom in on that I can, I can use the power that Apple gives me to zoom. Uh, well, what aspect in particular are you interested in? I can see our ink walk Okay. Yeah, uh, very interesting. And you can get some nice, you see some nice motion just from top. Okay, let me simulate for 10 days, and then the problem is it runs faster through the command line. So, um, let me see if I can actually run another instance. I think I might be able to do the same one. Actually, no, it won't like that. It's the same one. Uh, I'll put out this one. And run another one. So, this is the initial boot up exploration. This is a new ape to the island, new brain information, and the ape is just exploring initially. Going into the water, swimming across, getting a sense of the space, uh, not yet stopping for feeding. This is the uh, energy. When the energy gets to about here, they have to start feeding, basically. And this is their speed. So as they're swimming, they slow down. As they get onto land, they speed up. Now it's eating there. Um, through more information, you can see specifically what they were eating, but they are eating something from a biological uh, environment. And now they're asleep. So really, the reason I run the simulation for 10 days is 10 days is a good amount of time for them actually to start doing initial interactions, start getting a sense of the land environment, start actually providing information because they've interacted with other apes at that point. Um, slowly but surely, if you run it for... Um, if they are born at the age of maturity, which means that they can have children from now. So you also start having the introduction of children through that time. Um, if you run it for uh, a year or two, you start seeing the kind of children develop, basically, and, and so it goes on. Um, there is a parameter, I think, a lot of that is actually compressed, associated with uh, suckling and all that period. But Bob put all that in, so there are social events associated with all those things. So the um, child, the, the, the infant novelate, will basically mainly have like suckling events and these kind of things, which creates a, a parental bond as well. So but the association, the suckling, there's a general nurturing event, there's a kind of tethering period uh, where the parents take around the children, and a general level of protection. Um, what you can do is, um, well, you can kill off a parent, you can do various other things, and you can force drowning, but you can also just remove them from the simulation. And you can then see how the, the child develops, uh, whether they take foster parents, whether there's a kind of community development, all these kind of things from the simulation. How do we do just the there's a mom and daughter. Mm -hmm. Mom's vanishes the daughter. Well, the daughter maintains the memory of the mother, yeah. but basically her relationship with the mother changes dramatically over time. Is it the same as the death? Because the death just disappears from the body as well? Or is there a remaining body? No, there is, there is, that's an interesting thing. The, the mourning process associated with a remaining body is an interesting thing. It's not done in the simulation, they just disappear. 
And that, I think, would actually produce something that was very interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's a very good point. I'll, uh, I'll certainly consider putting that in there, because uh, that's a really good addition. You would then have things like social burial or what have you. This is actually in a state of panic. Um, but just on the land and falling asleep being exhausted. Yeah. So, um, no, uh, death and mourning would be a really interesting addition in terms of actually maintaining the body. Uh, and that is a very interesting addition because a lot of the uh, mythology is associated with the disappearance as well. Uh, they maintain it because there isn't an entity there. And if there was an entity there, it was just deceased, it would have a different impact. So that is very interesting. So how do they decide what it's going to do next? As I described, there are a variety of factors that contribute to movement. Yeah. But, okay, but they are all deterministic and... So as you see here, it's not particularly good for this example, but typically what it will do is show immediately what its considerations are. So here obviously it's sleeping, so its immediate consideration is shown. Um, but sometimes you will have three or four things that are within its immediate consideration. So it may be related to, um, so for example, procreating, finding a mate, these kind of things, relatively self-evident if there is a mate present. If there's not a mate present, then that in itself becomes a drive to go into an area where it may suspect where it's seen the mate previously. Um, eating is similar. They will find territorial feeding grounds and they will return to those people. Yeah, so, so, so you've, got, you've got several different drives. Mm -hmm. How do you determine which ones you just then work on the numbers? So the drives are motivating rather than eating and fatigue are basically dominant drives. Now, if they are, and eating, um, eating, so you, both eating and if it wants to eat, it doesn't. So, if it doesn't want to eat, then it chooses and it's not dry. Or if it gets, and presumably, excitement and fear, it probably eats eat. So, mm -hmm. But, but you have a you have a hierarchy in the system. If, so you, you check the first condition first, and you decide to do that one. It's not quite that simple um, because the. After eating and fatigue, well, basically they're resolved in the same way. Um, they don't. I don't think there's any condition where the noble will sleep due to exhaustion during the day. They may stop moving and rest, but they won't sleep due to exhaustion during the day. If they're hungry, they'll seek out food, unless they're in a circumstance where they can't seek out food. And, and then, in certain circumstances, if we saw there's potential for them to get into panic. After that, there are more subtle factors that affect it rather than just simple, here's a hierarchy. And aside from the uh, drives, also um, elements of their narrative. I mean, it can become, when they pick up rocks and they do these kind of things, there are a variety of things that they do that are more part of their internal narrative than anything else. Um, so they have a certain amount of free time, which typically they'll initially use for exploration. But then, as they interact with other apes and what have you, they have a narrative. I mean, they can brandish sticks, they can do a wide variety of things, they can, you know, practice fighting, practice doing a wide variety, which is done on, um, on the linguistic level, fundamentally. So it's not a, it's their internal narrative. That's occurring when these four are good to go. Uh, uh, not even necessary. Kind of so if you think of the sex drug, for example, the sex drug typically, after a long period of time, unless they haven't found the mate, yeah. remains high. 
well, let's say everything's kind of an okay mm -hmm. state. Is that when they're internal narrative and playing around with stuff? Yeah. Kind of picks up so, the, yeah, if you think about, yes, very much so. So after the immediate and eating and rest to the immediate, then the, the drives are interesting to describe because they're not a priority, they're a kind of long-term, they're not something that motivates priority initially, they're something they can access through the narrative, but they're not something that will actually motivate anything. And they're, um, I think there's some interesting kind of, the anthropology of no late mating, I think there's something there. I think there's an anthropology of these things, which is not defined explicitly, but comes through the narrative. So you prepare the simulation where, um, based on underlying land factors, and perhaps where you group the apes initially, where they would have um, social dance is an interesting phenomenon. Okay, um, through free time, they do a variety of movements, both socially and on their own. These movements can become reinforced. Okay, these movements can then be connected to perception and uh, mating rights. They have an underlying uh, genetic element associated with finding mates as well. They have underlying preferences and tastes, which are genetic. Uh, and that's very interesting in and of itself, how to find mates. But there's no hierarchy that says the genetic preferences versus the narrative, they're, they're intertwined, basically. And it's elements from both that will, you know, move them towards a particular entities. And so they have a particular interest in uh, an ape, uh, and then they hear a narrative which makes that ape seem negative. So that's something in addition that defects it. It's not just a single cause; it's a multi-layer kind of cause and effect problem. Is it deterministic or So it's um, it's. This is an interesting question. Each ape contains a random element. The um, environment, and this is to do with running it over distributive processes, the environment appears to be random but isn't. The, you can start from the same place. So the idea is that you can split the apes over multiple processes and you can run the simulation independently or on one of these processes and you will get the same results. And the way that you do that is by having um, a deterministic environmental simulation, and it is fundamentally deterministic, but the random number generator is the interesting part of it. So I've gone through three different random number generators associated with Overlight that I've handcrafted initially and then worked on the very specific requirements for. But um, it is, in terms of putting in the same seed, same outcomes, it's deterministic in that time. Okay. But in terms of the underlying, that's because you know the random everywhere through. If you don't know the random at one place, then it is random. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you are identifying random. Mm -hmm. So the eight viewpoints are very random. <laughs> 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 well, yes. The elements that would affect them in that light associated with random are interesting in and of themselves. Um, I don't think it's strictly a randomizing factor because there are strengths in the underlying narrative as we were talking about every aspect. It's not that it will just be one specifically, it will be that they all have component. So, yes, there are random elements to that, but there are points where um, their hunger or uh, elements of narrative or what have you are above the kind of random threshold that would change their movement. It's very interesting, actually, just to what I've done is taken a simulation, say that 
and change one of the eight uh, random numbers by just enough, well, a single, a single amount, which obviously propagates very quickly. But when you look at that over time, and you can track it over time and how they move differently, uh, they basically, for probably the first 20 to 30 minutes, you don't really see anything out of the ordinary. They may move a slightly different path, they may move in a slightly different direction, but then after about an hour, they're typically sufficiently different that they will be doing something completely different. But that isn't so much a, it's just the subtle elements of random kind of piecing together yeah. in that. So, uh, this okay. me off the streets. <laughs> I'm not sure when we're supposed to wrap this uh, thing up. Okay, so... That's close enough. Let's call it a day. Big pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Interesting question for a godlike figure. You create a whole universe and you get to control C. Is he a match murderer? I mean, he made it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. He's now. Yes. How big language? Uh, it's about, about 67 commands, I think. It's of an order. And it's a space of, I think, um, 250 bytes per entity. So it's a relatively small amount, but it's enough to eat. It's always been, um, well, here's the interesting thing. So with, um, with code, with code wars, with core wars, it has to be a byte um, orientation. I have an additional scripting language called bait script, where um, it's, I think, it could be even 64 bit limited. And my view is that the brain code needs to move into bait script and belong to bait script. is also human readable and it's, it's stable. So I think there will be a movement from the narrative engine, which is only called brain code into ApeScript uh, probably within the next year or so. And that would give a far greater buzz. With greater space comes a wide variety of additional factors. And it's not a one-to-one -one thing um, in terms of what it will add. But I certainly, as a kind of midterm project, uh, have a serious interest in actually changing what the brain, what the narrative engine part is doing, particularly for the human readable. Um, I mean, it does produce core war style bytecode. I, I, I showed it previously, I'm <laughs> but it does produce core war style bytecode. Um, aside from the numerical versions, I've got the, the bytecode that you can read, but, but it's not human readable. Yeah, but if you just you just change, change those bytes into, into words. Mm -hmm. but, but it's still relatively abstract. The, the benefit of script is it's a C-like language, which can even then be added, you can then have proper narrative to that. I mean, it's close enough to, it's not human language, it's C-like in yeah. terms of the structure. But you can then describe that, you know, if this, then that, then this, then that, then, you know, while, and these kind of things. Um, so it's slightly easier to read than the, 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 the,
But yeah, that's, that's another medium term project. Yeah, but it's just that communication. You know, quite understand how you turn it into language. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm talking about when, when, when a part of the other. Mm -hmm. So there are two bytecodes that are processed in parallel, so and they are then exchanged. Okay, so so, so, the, so, so, the, so the so the two-way conversation. The processing yes creates yes. always a two-way conversation. Yeah, yeah. This is the whole reason that they have internal associated with inter internal representations and external, so, so they can have internal coherent internal conversations as well. And then then those statements can go into the memory, right? mm -hmm. into the episodic memory. Episodic memory is actually. Aside from the small number of cases, populated by external events, though. So, if they have a conflict, for example, with another rate, or if they eat something, or these kind of things, these are very much external events that are in the end. They, they can be put into the episode. Exactly. So, they have to be describable by the time. Certainly. In some regard, yeah. They uh, have a, a, a space time kind of footprint, so, well, also waiting associated with the strength of the episodic memory. So the birth of a child, for example, or these kind of things is really strong um if you have a twin concept. Right. But you know if you had a birth then they would remember that for the topics for a year. Nothing else they most things they only remember for the days. Yeah, less than days in some circumstances. If they have a lot of interesting stuff happening in the day, they'll forget things. Because they only have so much memory. Is, is there a way, is there currently any narrative going on external from it? Like, could I say this twig is heavy? Or, yeah. is, it, or is it only more like that a branded twig? Uh, well, um, what, is, what is described through narrative is the interaction. Um, but in interacting, you create something that describes what has occurred as well. So, um, because the underlying biology is in representing quantum mechanics, the tweet doesn't really have an existence until it's interacted with in that fashion. So, in that case, yes, things develop an existence through narrative. On the level of tweaks, external apes to a certain extent exist. Okay, so it would be more like this ape thinks this tweak is happening. Mm -hmm. that's, that's more to be like, mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But that they do. They do understand that they're thinking in that manner. So this is the really interesting of double touch. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you you want to be able to do this and understand that you're touching as well. Um, the because they know that they know. That's very interesting. So there was some discussion associated with this little narrative because they have an internal representation of themselves. They can actually. They have a notion of self, which is probably. Do they have the concept of no? Um, I mean, they're that one of the verbs. They have a concept, I guess, of validity, which is kind of like no, in some of them. Or, well, it's a referential validity. Well, um, I don't know, it's kind of deeper philosophical mapping. So, so do they have the concept of falsehood? 
As I wrote it originally, the Noble Apes were very trusting, and they didn't have the concept of false, but I think they do now through narrative. Um, so I'm pretty clear that they have they have a concept that what is what is being told to them is not true, so that is also. Yes, so then they do have the concept of false. Mm -hmm. So, and that's why, and, and they make judgments that's why based they on that. So they can believe contradictory things. Exactly. Yeah. And when they simply recognize them. Well, okay. So in the case of the in the case of the false parent, yeah, that's what there was, was a circumstance of um, no, they can't. Well, they recognise it's a problem. What's represented to us is their true parent and their false parent. So we know by looking at it, so and so is their father, and so and so has been represented of the father of them, but isn't. We know that looking at it. But what you'll typically find is that they will immediately. They will be repellent from their true parents when they discover. So they're, they're, they're I think told. almost, in all cases that I've observed, they're, if they're given information from a source that they trust that contradicts what they have internally, that they will believe more readily the source that they trust if they really trust that source. Now they will recognize this, I think, is to do with propagation of the rumor. Why the apes that are the most talked about tend to have, have these kind of turmoil as we do. Um, so they're aware of the contradiction on some level, but this is actually probably kind of taking a note like, yeah, this is more deep philosophy than I really thought through. But they, they won't actually know who the parent is in the book. No, it's no, that's no, exactly no, what so so they only know something that they told them. Mm -hmm. Or through, inter well, or they did it. Or through, inter well, through interaction. I think the suffering interaction is primary associated with parents. And my sense, uh, this is this is deeper, um, this is more the side of things than is my side of things. It tends to be specifics associated with this. But my understanding through observation associated with this is that um, if they are born and they're suckled and they are reared, they will know through certain things. Um, there's such a type of problem, I think, related to pheromones specifically. But there are contact ways in early childhood that establish parents. Now, this is displayed to us as specifically parents. What the ape themselves internally, coherently understands is this. I think currently through brain code probably could be intuitive, but is relatively unintelligible through us observing the simulation. Um, you could dump the brain code and then go through it and actually analyze it, but the level of granularity that you're displayed is so-and-so is their father, so-and-so has been told is their father. This is their relationship with those two entities. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, you need to go into the brain code basically to understand what was actually going on. Um, and I don't think that's the, ne that's the need for um, a natural language brain code. Uh, you could go into it. I've, I've watched and I've, I've done slow decodings of this, but in real time or even, you know, I think these kind of paradoxes should be um, should be studied for um, because it is interesting, and it will probably expose you know, other things that um, that are either, either flaws or strengths, basically.
Yeah. <laughs> it's a never-ending process. I mean, yeah, what, what can you... <laughs> but you've got the episodic memory. Mm -hmm. they have, but there's other things remembered in their brain at a deeper level. So they have access to the episodic memory for the narrative engine. So it is, yes, it is. So they don't appear other than through the episodic memory. Yes. I have that mind. Yes. Unless they trust the entity that has given them the information, in which case it creates a term, which the other apes talk about as well. Which the original, original fact is based on their own internal trust of themselves. It's based on uh, suckling events, I seem to recall. This again is, is Bob Waltram heavily in there, but um, my recollection is that uh, various primary points of contact reinforce parental relationships. But after that, um, this can be perturbed by narrative. And there are circumstances where you could potentially allow a to be a suckling mother. You could kill off uh, a mother in the simulation and then see if the orphan date would gravitate towards another, another suckling fever and another interaction would take place. And in that case, I'm pretty certain that the interactions, if, if it was permissible, by the mother, or by the foster mother. Um, but yeah, that would create interesting relationships as well. You need to be able to watch these tapes in real time. Yes, you need to, well, you need to look for detail, but it's very difficult. I mean, this is the thing, not just, not just graphical detail, you need to have an internal narrative, which you, you need to watch it in slower than real time. Fundamentally, because that would be the time that you would be able to absorb the full level of detail that you need. Well, you, you could just slow the thing down. Exactly. If you wanted to see something. Yeah. Yeah, a zoom and slow. Said, but I think the problem would be still today is you wouldn't have the, the computational power to do it. Mm, no, I, I don't think the problem is computational. I mean, as, as you noted, um, when you don't have the power, you just have the numbers. In terms of prices and what have you. And the further problem is you want to see what's going to happen five years from now. You don't want to use five years before. But you also want to know what's happened five years previously as well. Yes, so you want now you've got analog memory. Oh, because you don't have to remember the whole thing. Yes, you can see it. You don't. You only you have take... to remember one instant here, one instant there. You, well, you can, yes, you need you to... can extrapolate between. Yes, you need to know you some of the random elements. You need to know the constant of the random. The, yes. the random, yeah. the random uh, numbers. It's not so easy to keep the randomness it is, across the whole thing. It's, well, you just need to know the points where storing the random is important. And then right. you kind of carry that shadow of randomness through, and then you can repopulate based on that. Right, but well, you have to have multiple points. Of course. Yeah. 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 Well. Thank you very much. Not a problem. Oh, uh, I need to introduce myself. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Tom Marble. Pleasure to meet you. Good to meet you. So, yes, you have my contact details, so yes. be in touch. Yes. Yeah, well, since once I have your name, I can... <laughs> yes, it's a unique name. Yeah, and since I, you're all over the uh, program, uh, that's good.